Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. It's Friday, June 9th, and we are in the thick of graduation season, people. Congratulations if you happen to have a graduate. One of our interns just made it through middle school, so we were at his ceremony earlier today. It's all going way too fast. I wish I could slow down the clock. I'm sure many of you can relate. On the flip side, our son is very Alex P. Keaton-esque with a lot of insights beyond his ears. So at least when he's a grown-up, I should have a very solid business manager. Because of the ceremony and a number of other things going on at Strictly VCHQ, we are skipping our news stories this week and jumping right into this week's interview with guest Miles Grimshaw, the newest general partner at the storied venture firm Benchmark. Grimshaw joined the firm at the end of 2020 after being poached by Benchmark from Thrive Capital in New York, where he spent more than seven years. It was a very natural fit for Benchmark, which has always been managed by a very small team that splits its carry evenly among partners and so is very, very careful about who it hires. Most firms, as many listeners will know, are much more hierarchical with some of the OGs making most of the money. This, of course, is also why we often see VCs leave big brands to hang their own shingles. In any case, Grimshaw led deals that thrive, including Airtable, the software collaboration company, which Benchmark also backed. So he came to know Benchmark through that deal. At Thrive, Grimshaw also discovered the live shopping startup Supergreat, which Benchmark funded a couple of years later. Not last, at Thrive, Grimshaw led the seed and Series A rounds of Benchling, a life sciences startup that develops tools for scientists and pharmaceutical research organizations that was valued at a whopping $6 billion at the end of 2021, though it is unclear where it would be valued right now. Like everyone else, the company is facing some headwinds and just a month ago laid off 74 people or 9% of its staff. Either way, Benchling is another company that Thrive had in common with Benchmark, which also funded the company and also very clearly likes Grimshaw's taste in startups. We talked with Grimshaw about a range of things, including Twitter, though we forgot to hit the record button a little sooner. So you're basically tuning in just as we were finishing up that part of our conversation. We did really enjoy talking with him. We hope you will enjoy hearing from him. But before we get to that interview, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Finley the debt capital management platform for startups. What if debt, not equity, is the make-or-break factor for your startup? When Finley's CEO, Jeremy Shway, was a debt investor at Goldman Sachs, he saw that smart capital management is the competitive differentiator in fintech and lending. That's why he founded Finley, modern software to help startups manage their borrowing bases, financial covenants, and other debt capital must-haves. Today, finance teams at leading companies like Ramp, TripActions, and ARC rely on Finley to manage over $3 billion in debt capital with private credit lenders like Goldman Sachs and Upper 90. Interested in learning more? As a Strictly VC listener, you can get a free debt capital consultation from Finley's Capital Markets team at finleycms.com slash strictlyvc. That's finleycms.com slash strictlyvc. 
terrible Twitter game. But honestly, I've always found Twitter sort of demoralizing. <laughs> so I, I kind of became disillusioned with it early on. Are you using it any more or less? It sounds like you were never really using it much to begin with. I certainly am a consumer. I find it a really interesting way to have a unique digest and flow of perspective and information and, and proactively maybe break one's filter bubble, so to speak. So it's really useful for that. But I, uh, my mind doesn't go to tweeting every day. It goes to a lot of other things. So I'm a bad creator. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. I'm much more of a voyeur. I save it for the newsletter and for TechCrunch. So Miles, it is really a treat to get to talk to you. So I saw, of course, when you joined Benchmark, and I follow Thrive, but Thrive, like Benchmark, is somewhat low-flying, even more so. So I know you went to Yale. What did you study and how did you end up at Thrive in the first place? And was there a stop in between? Yeah, absolutely. So Yale, I was probably in many ways a very classical liberal arts student. I technically actually switched majors senior spring and did a lot of computer science, some engineering, economics, international studies, enjoyed philosophy and writing. And so I certainly indulged the breadth of a liberal arts education. I technically majored in economics. And the journey to getting to work with the team Thrive was very serendipitous and organic. And it seems crazy to say right now, let's call it sort of 2010 timeframe, being interested in software, in building applications and the like on the East Coast was fairly nascent at the time. The question was, could you have a Silicon Alley? And those who were on the East Coast found each other and bonded together and said, yeah, we can, let's do it, let's build. And so when I was at Yale, I was a sort of bad engineer, but enjoyed putting things out there. And so found a group of friends. We actually taught some web development class together, made simple Rails apps for fun. And through that, I happened to meet Will Gabrick, who was actually at the Yale Law School at the time. He went on to be one of the partners at Thrive as well, and then CFO of Stripe. And he and I became friends organically around interests in products and applications, software uh, building. And he happened to know Josh from his undergrad days. And I started hanging out with them in New York on the weekends and then said, let's team up. And so I joined the group officially in 2013, which was when I graduated, but I probably started spending time with them around 2012 or so and was like the fourth or fifth person. We were it was a total of eight people, I think, at the time, including a finance lead and EAs and the like. You know, we we're in the corner of what is now a very big office there. And so it was very organic and you felt kind of a bit like the outsiders proving it was possible. And it was a really fun time. That's really great. And I'm sorry to ask, I'm sorry, I don't know. Are you Australian? I'm British. Oh, um, you are British. <laughs> it's a very muggled accent though, because I grew up in the UK since I was 12 and then moved to Boston. <laughs> and uh, I am the eldest of seven kids. So oh my gosh. And you go to the next eldest, no accent. So I was right, <laughs> right, right on the cusp of preserving a few words. <laughs> That's incredible. It's, it's really funny. I, I was reading a time story yesterday about somebody in Georgetown who's neighbors are up in arms because he's have, has these giant transformers in front of his yard. And I think he was described as having an indiscernible accent. <laughs> I thought <laughs> they could just ask him. But I also just thought it might be interesting for readers and listeners and myself to understand a little bit about how the firms work differently and similarly. Because again, these are very concentrated firms. I mean, I don't know how big Thrive is at this point. I'm assuming that you're still in touch with those guys, but obviously Benchmark has remained very small. I think you are just a five-person team still. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're five partners. Great. And you are the newest, having joined in 2020. Can you 
just spend a few minutes talking about, I guess, how they're similar and how they're different? Yeah, I would say a benchmark, as you know, we've kept it simple and consistent. And it's just the five of us. It's always an equal partnership, somewhere in the range of probably five to six or so partners. And a very heavy focus on each making one or two commitments each year. And a huge part of it really is not in many ways the capital. It's that commitment of service to helping amplify the odds and scale of success of founders' mission and ambition. And in many ways, we don't think that the role for that and the value of that has changed and are committed to being excellent at that. And so remain consistent in that exclusive focus. And it's been fun and a joy to work with Peter and Sarah and Eric and Chatham in the past few years. And I got to know them originally actually through Benchlink, which Eric, my partner here, invested after I had done actually at Thrive. And we both serve on the board. So we got to know each other through that and Airtable co-investment and a consumer one called Supergreat with Sarah. And so had known them for a number of years and it's been a blast working with them every day and having that exclusive focus. It's nice and that continuity, having those three companies in common, or I guess maybe super great. You had invested in Thrive and then Benchmark came into Correct, the yeah. after you joined Benchmark or before you joined Benchmark? Before. So I'd worked with Eric Fisher on Benchling together and with Peter Fenton at Airtable, Thrive and Benchmark co-invested at the same point. And then Sarah, I also worked with, so I'd worked with three of the four of them on Supergreat and she invested late 2018, maybe. So for a year or so, maybe even close to going on two years before I joined the partnership. And that was the more recent one. So it had been a number of years in all cases of getting to know each other in that way. And I want to talk about your portfolio companies because, of course, I think people are going to be interested in what's interesting to you. Just quickly going back to Thrive, only because I have such limited insight into that firm, including because it's on the other coast. Has Thrive grown much? I know they've grown their assets under management. I know they started raising very substantial funds. Yeah, I don't know the exact figures lately, but Josh and Kareem and Vince and the team over there, I have enormous respect and admiration for the ambition. And that has been one of serving folks in many different ways. And I know after I left, they raised a $2 billion fund. And I think since another $3 billion fund. And so I'm not sure exactly how big the team is lately, but I know they've continued to build out various functions and support for founders. And so I think last I heard, it is a few times bigger than when I had left, for sure. I'm not sure how much. Got it, got it. I wasn't sure if they've embraced the services model, the platform, a la Andreessen Horowitz or not. Yeah, I think they do have a, I'm not sure how big, but uh, there's certainly been investment in that endeavor. So Benchmark, right, to, to your point, stayed much the same. I remember talking to Bill Gurley about a fund that I think Benchmark raised during the dot-com bubble a million years ago, 2001, that I think was a billion dollars. And he said, we'll never do that again. It's just way too much money to get a venture-like return. Obviously, a lot of firms went in that direction in recent years. Benchmark refused to do that. And sometimes I saw coverage saying, why is Benchmark being so stubborn, essentially, about raising more capital? Of course, I'm sure you're all very happy now that you did not. So, Miles, let's talk a little bit about your company. So you have been involved with Benchling, as you said, since your days at Thrive. This is probably a company that's always incorporated AI to some degree, but maybe you can tell me a little bit about how that company has evolved and how AI is influencing how it offers its services today. 
Yeah, sure. Benchling, partnering with them in 2014 or so, we mostly in our world have consumed small molecule drugs. Think of your aspirin. And with CRISPR, which maybe you've heard about the ability to edit genes, that was invented, oh, I think early 2010s, 2012 or something. I forget exact date. But I read about that and heard about that. And the Benchling co-founders had worked around and had many friends at the Broad Institute. And Feng Zhang was one of the co-inventors of CRISPR. CRISPR's lab. And so they were very knowledgeable on really the bleeding edge of what could be possible in large molecule creation and building the tools for it. So instead of being able to draw a chemical structure on a whiteboard, all of the nucleotides of your DNA, a lot harder to draw out, write out all the ACGT pairs on a whiteboard. And so we really felt that there was an opportunity. And that's what the company's been devoted to chasing for the past, I guess, almost decade now which is really serving as the software platform to speed up the pace of Mm R&D for this new age and increasingly some chemistry teams as well. And I would say, as it pertains to AI, we all are very focused on really the Netscape moment of ChatGPT and the exposure of an LLM. It's so visceral and tangible to everyone, parents, grandparents, siblings, even outside of tech, can have fun with it, can see it, can play with it. And it's pretty remarkable in that sense. But the transformer as a model architecture and what's possible, I actually think there's tons of opportunity there, but it's also in two other places that are just equally as profound. One of which, if you haven't been in San Francisco for a moment, there are hundreds of self-driving cars driving around San Francisco right now. I've ridden in them quite a few times. And the transformer architecture there has played a huge part in enabling that. And that's viscerally in front of us. And then as it pertains to bio, there's a really interesting evolving frontier of research that is realizing that the same sort of language model architecture that is powering ChatGPT can be used to train language models on those to generate new potential proteins. And so I think these models, architectures, and large-scale unsupervised deep learning is having already profound impacts in a number of areas. Then as you point out, bio is certainly one such exciting frontier that isn't talked about as much, but there's a language for that human biology that we've decoded. And we're now finding using these models to find the potential patterns and variations in them beyond what we as humans would have done. And I also just wondered if Benchlink is still planning to go public. I'd seen in late 2021, was it, or 2022, it had filed confidentially. I know that you've probably got to be careful, but could you say if that's maybe in the works for 2023? I won't speak to any timelines, obviously, but I think it's absolutely a company that will be a public company at some point. It has the genes to do that, no pun intended. (laughs) And the ambitions to do that, to be the sort of company that endures and serves this really important market to all of us as end consumers of the customers that we serve, and we'll want to stand the test of time in terms of impact in that way. And so we'll absolutely be a public company at some point. Since you have worked for so long with this particular company, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I would say headline would be change creates those windows of opportunity mm-hmm. and uh, are always exploring and inquisitive and curious about that. And so I'm no scientist, but I had read about CRISPR and the possibilities of being able to edit our genes and the fun consumer 
question around that was, would we have designer babies at some point? And most people said at the time it was a small market. It would never be big enough. One of what you'd call a top few venture firms said they should open source it because they'll never make any money. And I said, no, I think that there'll be a really exciting big vertical market here with a lot of software need. And so I would say the same thing happened recently partnered with Langchain, which maybe you've read about, and it's helping application developers realize some of the power available in these large language models beyond that of just writing marketing copy. Mm -hmm. And I got to know Harrison in the back half of last year when it was an open source project and he was still at his prior company and it was kind of a side hobby thing of exploration. And it was his organic inquisition into all these methods for getting more power out of the models and we're wondering what that could unlock and what potential there was. And spent many months not saying, hey, please take money, but saying, well, where could we take this? What's your ambition for it? What could be possible? And that culminated in ultimately partnering. But it was through exploring that frontier of saying, what could be possible here? What could we dream and then work to embark on and realize the full potential of? And so I'd say there's many consistent stories of that probing of the right there frontier. So it's very much outbound because I'm sure that you, Benchmark gets countless founders reaching yeah. out, hoping the firm will pay attention, but it sounds like you prefer to take the time to think through themes on your own and find people that are interesting in a particular area. We are always welcome, obviously, <laughs> for folks coming to us, but I would say we do more proactive, let's call it, exploration than Maybe some might think, given we don't necessarily post themes or long essays on topics publicly, but we're doing, doing a fair bit of that. And then as it relates to Langchain, what is the business model there? Is that also a SaaS business? You know, I think in the space between an application experience that will get built and the model obviously at the sort of bottom of that stack, there already is a wide range of needs, whether that's connecting proprietary data, whether that's sort of as these get more complicated in capabilities and sort of agentic and they'll take action, managing that, monitoring of that, the infra around that. And so I think there'll be a wide gap there to serve with great software and be a SaaS business for. I would say that as you're probably seeing right now, whether that's startups or public companies, as Bezos says, consumers are, and I think it applies to businesses who serve them, obviously divinely discontent. And I do think that what has been felt viscerally now is the consequence of us all, in some sense, getting a browser for the first time and seeing the internet or getting a chat GPT for the first time and seeing a language model and starting to show up in products. The bar got raised and what we're going to expect of software got raised and any company doesn't want to be a dinosaur after the meteor struck roaming around thinking everything's blissful. And that need, that pull, that bar raising is what Langchain is supporting as application developers come to the market saying, okay, great, there's this language model that spits out tokens. How do I craft that into workflows and great product experience for my customers? Mm -hmm. um, and the pull from companies is remarkable. And where are those developers finding Langchain? How's it growing its market share? It has remarkable word of mouth in many ways. We certainly do no marketing. We got started earlier this year and now have a handful of engineers, but no one outside of an engineer on the team. And that team is obviously very active in the open source community. 
I think their Discord now is something like 20,000 members. The team is certainly at a lot of events where there's a flood of application engineers, developers trying to learn and imagine and create. And so they're in the um, slipstream of all of that energy. Sure. Well, having you and Benchmark involved in Sequoia can't hurt. I was interested to see that you led a $10 million seed round in this company and like a week later, is that right? Sequoia led a $20 million round? I forget the exact timing, but um, yes. So was that competitive at the seed round or can you talk a little bit about how that came together? I don't know who else was competing at the time. I was told after, I think there were quite a, <laughs> quite a number. But, you know, as I said, had built a relationship with Harrison and Ankush, and it felt in many ways more like what shape of partnership would be great for us to make this work together and let's go on this mission and less, you know, FOMO of a deal. And it had been an escalation to that point. And so I think there were quite a few C crossover, oh heck, probably even some, you know, hedge funds excited to who knows what, but wasn't a focus. That's great. And so other companies, Lattice, a people management platform founded by Jack Altman. Glide is a company of yours that helps people with no coding ability to build mobile and web apps. The one that I think is just interesting, and again, seems a field somewhat, and I haven't heard about, but I'm maybe not the target audience, is Super Great, which features real people reviewing their favorite beauty products. Tell me a little bit about this company, because I remember it had, from what I could understand, a virtuous cycle of engagement where it turns visitors into reviewers who become shoppers. And I don't know if that's still what's happening there. Yeah, you've certainly got a good sense for it. The premise was, and AI may even make this not in a six month time frame, but on a slightly longer time frame, maybe even amplify this, which is a view that other individuals are in many ways the biggest influence on commerce and interlocked with that the ability to have a more joyful discovery experience online being possible, hopefully. And so the company has really been thinking about those two things for quite some time. The reason I say AI might have an impact on this is, I don't know about you, but I'm increasingly actually searching for information in ChatGPT or similar apps. And uh, obviously it hallucinates, but more might start there. Sometimes even its hallucinations, honestly, is better than having to rummage through all the links on Google and navigate gunged up SEO, et cetera. If we start to have distrust from some of that over time, and I guess you also might have the risk of people making lots of fake things, but put that aside for a second, of authentic voices around topics, I think it may play an even more interesting role. But they built a community of, of folks who are excited and in beauty. It's a very visceral thing. It's a very visual thing. And so have built up and fostered a community around that and are intersecting with live shopping and social shopping experiences in captivating ways that isn't just possible with static text or a checkout screen on a website. And is the customer base mostly in the US? Yes. Okay. I was just going to say, I think I'd seen a headline recently and I didn't really dive in that live shopping isn't taking off quite as expected. It's much more popular in Asia. And I didn't know if that's something that you were seeing or if you would agree with. It hasn't had the pandemic moment in quite the same way. It hasn't had that. But I don't think that that was definitively not going to happen. And I would say the need certainly in the West 
I think is you still have to create really engaging, unique experiences. And I think if you go look at Twitch, it's a huge audience and people are creating really interesting, engaging, unique experiences. You felt like you were there for a moment with a digital community that you feel like you have a kinship with. And we've been focused on that mentality of a product experience at Supergreat which is not just, hey, here's a product, let me talk about it, but something richer, something more unique, something more of the moment. And I think that'll be important product arc, which I think is still nascent. And I think I'd look to something like Twitch as an example, a huge example. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I have some sense of them. And it's enormous of what could be possible when you really do crack that code. So Miles, I want to let you go on a few minutes. I really appreciate your time. Quickly, is Benchmark an investor in one of these foundational models? We are not, no. We are partners though with Cerebrus, which is actually beneath the foundation models is a GPU chip company that we partnered with. My partner, Eric's on the board of in 2017, give or take, uh, but we're not partners at the foundation model level. Did you have a chance to invest in these companies? These companies have raised a lot of money. I'm wondering if that was a factor here. Yeah, OpenAI, I I can't speak to necessarily because, well, first of all, it started as a nonprofit and then pivoted and obviously were tens of billions of valuation growth rounds. We have met with others and enormous respect for what they're doing. We don't start our decision-making from the lens of we're going to constrain ourselves to, it has to be a... $10 $10 million, $5 million, whatever investment, we start from the lens of wanting to be and aspiring to be the first and most impactful partner to founders and serving on their boards for a decade and that really being the body of work. And if a funding amount at inception might be larger than usual, we'll solve that together if we could go on that journey. And so that's the primary lens, but have not found the conviction of the enduring outsized market share that one of them may have and have rather said, and I think you see this in the open source now that that's coming out and quickly catching up. You can imagine the inputs to some of these obviously declining in cost over time, whether that's the amount of compute available on any chip or the cost of any chip. The knowledge obviously is diffusing and more people are knowing how to do it and don't need lots of money just to try and figure out how to do it. And you've even seen the rate of depreciation, if you will, in some of OpenAI's models, right? Think about how quickly they have obsoleted all of the spend they've done on GPT-2 or GPT-3. And so not to say we never would, but we at least think haven't gotten conviction there, but are very grateful for all the hard work and certainly think they can be good businesses, but have instead said uh, and focused on the developer layer above that, obviously Langchain and applications that will be newly enabled by it. I do think that the co-pilot lens is really the strategy of incumbents. I think a lot of founders are looking to co-pilot as the example so far of success. Of course, it is in many ways, right? GitHub's co-pilot product is probably one of the more successful application experiences. But if you talk to Nat, it was built with the mindset of how do you handle a very error-prone model, but still make it a good experience, which is obviously the state of play and a core product lens you'd have to have when they suddenly started working on that a year or two ago, I forget exactly. And it's an add-on experience, right? Which I think is the strategy of incumbents and is where the bar has been raised. And we're really excited to see teams that will maybe break that fundamental premise as a premise to their product experience as these models get really good and could reinvent 
the application experience, maybe potentially reinvent the business model that at the application layer allows for new companies to win outsized market share and, and are certainly very focused and eager to meet and partner with folks on that journey. I really appreciate your insights here. I think people are curious to know where Benchmark stands on all of this as everyone tries to make sense of who the big winners are going to be. And I also appreciate you giving me a sense of how your companies are using AI to grow their businesses more quickly. Really nice talking to you. I would love to meet you in person and in the not too distant future. And again, appreciate you making the time. No, my pleasure, Connie. Thank you. That's it. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. And special thanks to Finley, the modern debt capital management platform. Please check them out at finleycms.com slash strictlyvc. Have a great weekend, and we look forward to seeing you back here next week.